Romans is widely regarded to be the most significant and theologically rich book of the New Testament, if not the whole scriptures. It has some glowing reviews. Let me just read what people throughout church history have said about this book. William Tyndall, the man who translated the scriptures into English, called Romans the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. High praise. Martin Luther said something very similar. He said that Romans is the chief part of the New Testament. John Piper, Romans is the most important theological Christian work ever written. And just this last week, I was listening to an interview in which the guy being interviewed said this about Romans. It is the single most important piece of literature in the history of the world. High praise, huh? Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Romans, perhaps these glowing reviews are perhaps puzzling to you. Why would commentators, scholars of God's word, unequivocally say that Romans is so awesome? Well, I think we can glimpse that just by a quick overview of the book. I'm actually going to show you on the screen here how the book can be divided. I hope that's big enough for you. You can see the chapter divisions uh, underneath each section in Romans. So it begins with a discussion about God's wrath. Then you move into justification and sanctification and the doctrine of election, God's sovereign choice in salvation. And that is the theme of this epistle. It is these glorious truths of the gospel, and yet the last part of Romans reminds us that the gospel is not just some idea that we possess and give assent to, but the gospel is something that motivates us to live out. It's not just a bunch of truths with no application, and so the whole book of Romans is a progression through the gospel. This is not the five-minute gospel summary you give to your neighbor, either. Paul spends 16 chapters talking about it. We're going to be in here for, my guess is, at least a year, talking about the riches of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. Because of this book's unique emphasis on the gospel, as I'm sure you can imagine, it has been influential in the conversions of many people, a couple of which are really notable in church history. Uh, back in like 300 AD, you may have heard of St. Augustine. This guy is considered one of the pillars of the early church. Uh, it is amazing how many people refer back to his work and what he did for the faith. And yet before he was a Christian, he was someone who was immersed in secular philosophy. He was a very worldly man engaging in just the world. And one day, Augustine turned to Romans 13. And he read to cast off the works of darkness, debauchery, immorality, drunkenness, and put on Christ. And it was that text that led to his conversion. A thousand years later, there's a monk who is consumed with trying 
to achieve righteousness by his own strength. He's trying to live to the best. He's trying to live to the best of his ability to be right with God. And he's finding it's impossible. I, I cannot live a good life. And this monk turns to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where he sees that the righteousness of God is not something that we can achieve on our own. It is accomplished through faith. This monk is Martin Luther. And as you know, he went on to be a catalyst for the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church had enslaved people into this false sense of righteousness. You can achieve this on your own. And it was Romans that showed him. God's already done this for you. Maybe you, personally, have been saved because of the influence of Romans. Right? There are some key texts. We call it the Romans Road, by which we often navigate people through talking about Christ. Right? Some of the general ideas are that the wages of our sin is death. But there's a gift. It's Jesus Christ. God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the beauty and the glory of Romans. You can see its unique impact that it has made on church history. And I trust that as we study this book that has captured people for thousands of years, that our hearts, too, would be captured by Christ and his love for us in the gospel. So let's turn to Romans chapter 1, if you're not there already. We'll just look at the first seven verses this morning, and normally when we begin a new book study like this, we would spend some time introducing the book, answering some questions about Paul's audience and the occasion for writing and the time it was written, and how did a church get started in Rome? Did Paul start this church? Well, Paul doesn't waste any breath getting into the thick of it here in Romans. Verses into it, he's already talking about some deep theological truths, and so we'll actually answer those introductory questions as they appear in the text, most likely next week. Let's just read the first seven verses, and we'll see how Paul hits the ground running. In verse 1, we read, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ." To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you noticed, there was no period in this whole section until verse 7. This is one giant sentence that Paul has put together talking about the glories of the gospel. Normally, you can see the greeting there in verse 7, 
Paul usually gets that out of the way in the first verse or two. He always has this formula to the church of such and such, grace and peace to you. Well, he's not even two verses in before he's talking about the origin of the gospel, the resurrection, Christ's dual natures, the advancement of the gospel to the nations. And then it's almost like he realizes, oh yeah, I got to address this letter. It'd be a lot like if we got a gift and we were writing a thank you note and we were so captured by how awesome the gift was that we received that we've written a paragraph thanking the person and then we're like, I didn't even say the person's name yet. I didn't even address the letter. That's what has captured Paul's attention here. From the get-go, he is enraptured by Christ and what he has done. So we'll just work through this verse by verse and make some very simple and yet hopefully profound conclusions uh, that will really come together at the end. So just first and foremost, from verse 1 here, we're introduced to Paul, the author of Romans. He's written 13 books of the New Testament. Romans is the longest. And he introduces himself to these people as a servant of Christ Jesus. If you remember, Pastor John taught us a couple of months ago now that an alternate translation for this word servant could read slave. And I realize that slave is a loaded term, particularly in today's day and age, and yet we can examine Paul's life and make some conclusions about how he was truly a servant or slave of Jesus, right? We know from later scriptures that Paul is the guy who experiences intense suffering and persecution. He's beaten, he's stoned, he's shipwrecked, he he is mistreated by people, he goes on these missionary journeys and has this desire to pioneer and bring the gospel to people and places that have not heard, all for the sake of who? For Jesus. Paul's entire life is spent in service to his Lord. There was no place too far. There was no people too hostile that Paul did not say, I'm Christ's servant. They need to hear. I'll do whatever. And I I think an applicational question that we're confronted with right out of the gate as we consider Paul the servant of Jesus Christ, is this. How do you view yourself in relation to Jesus? Right? Is Jesus just an add-on to our weekly routine? Is he something that we've kind of segregated to Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings? Is he your Lord? Are you his servant? We considered not too long ago from Luke 6, Jesus asked the question, why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? That was puzzling even to Jesus. Your works are betraying how you feel about me. You, you would obey me if I were your Lord. And I just had to be honest with myself even this morning, thinking about if I had to address a church 
and, and say what I was a servant to, what I have to honestly say, you know, maybe I'm a servant of my free time. Maybe I'm a servant of people's perception of me. Maybe I serve the passions and desires of my heart. Maybe I serve any number of things, a desire to be influential, a well-liked, or this or that. What is it that we are serving in our lives? With the opening words of this book, as Paul is addressing this church in Rome, he says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. What Jesus says, I do. And that should be our mindset. We should echo with the Apostle Paul, yes, Jesus is my Lord also. And Paul's service to Jesus is described in the very next phrases here in verse 1. We read that he was called to be an apostle. That word called is significant. It appears again in verse 6. You can see it there that those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Again, that word called is in verse 7. Those who are loved by God and called to be saints. Those last two Uh, uses of the word called uh, are more in a salvific sense, talking about God's choice in choosing people to be his children. Here in verse 1, Paul says, I have a unique calling to be an apostle. Our scripture reading this morning from Galatians recounted part of Paul's calling. If you remember, he was on the road to Damascus to go persecute the church, and all of a sudden he's interrupted by a bright light, and he hears this voice, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he's blinded and led to this guy who uh, relays God's message to him and his sight is healed. And Paul was uniquely called to be an apostle. It's a messenger. It's a herald. Again, our scripture reading is helpful here. I have it on the screen for you, so I don't need to turn back there for you. But Paul, just speaking about this event, says that he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I just want to draw two brief things to your attention from this text. Notice first who Paul's audience is in his preaching. It's the Gentiles. Throughout the Testaments, particularly the Old Testament, the Gentiles seem to be on the fringe of the biblical narrative. There's not a whole lot said about them. Certainly there are exceptions. We know of some Gentiles who do know the Lord, but it's predominantly about Jewish people. And then we get to the New Testament, and it seems to be the same story. Acts chapter 2, 3,000 are added to Christ. By the time you get to Acts chapter 4, that number of Jews that believes in Jesus is up to 5,000. And we're sitting there scratching our heads thinking, are Gentiles always going to be on the fringe? Are, Are they just perpetually left to themselves, kind of on the outside of things, of God's redemptive plan, to which Jesus dispels that very quickly when he calls the greatest apostle and says, I want you to go proclaim this message to the Gentiles. How awesome is that? that Jesus himself had us in mind. And he commissioned the Apostle Paul to go to the Gentiles and proclaim his name. Second of all, notice from this text, when did God commission Paul? When was he set apart? This is fascinating. 
the text says that he had been set apart before he was even born. This, Paul isn't the only person that this thing is said about him, that he had been commissioned before he was born. The prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, in chapter 1, God tells him, when you were in the womb, I chose you. I've commissioned you to be a prophet to the nations. God uses people who aren't even born yet. He has plans for them. Before they're even converted, God has plans for them. And it's not just Jeremiah and the Apostle Paul that God has a plan for them before they were born. Certainly none of us are called to be the apostle to the Gentiles or a prophet in the same sense that Paul and Jeremiah were. But scripture does say this about God's calling upon our life even before we were born. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Again, this text is saying that God chose us long before we were even born, but when? Before the foundation of the world. God had a plan. In love. This was an act of love. Brandon already talked to us about this this morning. God comes to us in our greatest need. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. I think we can pause here and marvel at God's sovereignty. We are lucky if we can plan things a month in advance, right? There are so many variables, weather, health, timing, our schedules change all the time. If we're able to put a date on the calendar and keep that appointment, that's pretty awesome. God says, Paul, before you're born, I called you. Jeremiah, you're still in the womb. I have a plan for you. All of you who are in Christ, I chose you before the foundation of the world. Isn't that awesome? Do you doubt that God loves you? Do you doubt that he cares or knows? Before this world was ever created, God had a plan. Look at how this plan is described in the book of Isaiah. God says this about his sovereignty. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So bringing this all back to Romans, Paul has been set apart for the gospel. He has been called by God even before he was born. So this whole time that Paul is running around persecuting the church, God says, I have a plan for you. The message that he is bringing to the Gentiles isn't some last minute addition to the plan of God. And he's like, yikes, I got to come up with something quick. No, 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 no. Paul says, this has been anticipated since the time of the prophets. 
This is something we've considered recently in our Good Friday service back in Luke, right? We're looking at Psalm 22, seeing just very specific passages of scripture that talk about even Jesus' hands and feet being pierced. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who would bear our wounds and iniquities. From Sunday school in Luke, we were talking about even in Genesis, it's anticipated that an offspring of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpents. There is another prophet coming like Moses. A virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. The prof, excuse me, the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. All of these things find their origin in the Old Testament. We're continuing to marvel at the sovereignty of God and putting a plan together that spans not just a month like you and I try to plan ahead, that spans thousands and thousands of years before even the dawn of time as we know it. This message is what God has set in motion from eternity past. And it is this message that Paul has been called to proclaim, and this message and the Old Testament all focus in on one person. Verse 3 introduces him concerning his son. And the description of Jesus that follows focuses on his dual natures. We see, first of all, that he was descended from David according to the flesh. We might just reword this and simply say that Jesus was fully man. And his connection to David proves this. We have two genealogies of Jesus, one in Matthew through the line of Joseph that connects him to David, one in Luke, likely through Mary that connects him to David. And what those genealogies accomplish for us is we can look and see, oh, he had a dad and a grandpa and great-grandpa, and he connects to David. It checks out Jesus is a human. He's fully flesh and blood like us. Paul is drawing our attention to that, and it begs the question, why is it important that Jesus is a human? Does it really matter? Again, Craig already brought our attention to Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law so that he might redeem us. Jesus became a human underneath the law to do what no human ever could before him, to keep God's law. As we continue through Romans, we're going to see that the first Adam introduced sin and death and condemnation into the world, and death passed upon all of us. But there's a second Adam, another human who did what no one else had been able to, to keep God's law. And through this second human Adam, Jesus, as we know him, righteousness can be attributed to those who believe in him. There's another just natural consequence that makes Jesus' humanity significant, and that is simply that because he was human, Jesus could die. And it was his shed blood which secured our redemption. It is incredibly significant that Jesus is a human. But he's not just a human. Verse 4 says he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is not only man, but he is God. And upon first read through, this verse is actually a little bit confusing. Perhaps you even had a question as I was reading it. We'll just address it very briefly. It would seem to be that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God after a certain event. 
after the resurrection. And maybe we're left scratching our heads thinking, okay, but I know Jesus was always the son of God. Is, is this teaching that he wasn't until after the resurrection and God says, I declare you to be the son of God. If we're not careful, that is how bad theology starts to form. Jesus has always been the son of God. He even says while he was on earth that he's the son of God in John 10. So what is happening here? What is this talking about? Well, I think the whole concept hinges on the resurrection. And I want you to remember with me kind of the before and after of the resurrection. Prior to Jesus' death, he was making a lot of claims. He was doing a lot of signs which indicated this guy isn't like every other person we know. No one else can do miracles. No one else can raise the dead. No one else can forgive sins. He's doing and saying things that make him appear to be God. We know he is. Other people are trying to figure it out. And then he dies. And his critics could say, there's your answer. God doesn't die. Death has silenced a lot of people who claim to be God. If that happened today, and the person who was claiming to be God got cancer and passed away, we would say, well, there's your answer. Same for Jesus' skeptics. And yet we know that Jesus didn't stay dead. He was resurrected on the third day, proving that what? The claims he had made prior to this are true. That he is, in fact, who he said he would be. It is a great demonstration, as this verse uses the word power, it is a great demonstration of his power that he was resurrected from the dead. It should have been obvious. This guy who was claiming to be God before he died, here he is alive. Bingo. He's God. It's evidence of it. We see it. We can know it. Notice also that the spirit is mentioned here. There is some, I'll say, varying interpretations as to what role the spirit actually is playing in this verse. Probably the one that fits the setting and the rest of scriptures most clearly is that the spirit was involved in the resurrection. And so what we see going on here is that from other scriptures, we know that God resurrected Jesus, that Jesus resurrected himself, that the spirit is involved in the resurrection of Jesus. This is a Trinitarian work. The resurrection is something that all members of the Trinity were involved in. And so as we think big picture, we can see that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they are all actively engaged in the redemptive plan. This is not just one of the members of the Trinity thinking, I have a great idea, I'll redeem humanity. This is a united, cohesive effort on the Trinity's part to redeem you and I from our sins. Paul now directs his attention in verse 5 outward. The focus of Paul's gospel, or the true gospel, is Jesus. And now Paul directs his attention outwards as he proclaims Jesus to the nations. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations 
including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This phrase that we see in verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith, is likely a synonym for conversion. It's not a way that we usually talk about someone getting saved, but we see an example of this in Acts chapter 6, I believe, in which we are told that the gospel Uh, God's word is increasing, disciples are increasing, and then we're told uniquely that there are priests who are becoming obedient to the faith. And given that context, we can see that this likely means that what is being described here is the proclamation of this message to whom? Among all the nations. This is Paul's goal. I've alluded to this already, but he says that his desire is to bring the name of Christ where it hasn't been preached. He doesn't want to build on someone else's foundation, but he wants to proclaim Christ to the nations. For what purpose? Verse 5 tells us, for the sake of his name. Another way of wording this might be, I want to proclaim Christ not so that I'm glorified, but so that he is. That as people hear the good news of sins forgiven, no more condemnation. They don't say, wow, Paul, your message is awesome. They say, wow, your Savior is awesome. I want him too. He died for me. My sins can be forgiven. And this is Paul's heart to bring the gospel to the nations. This text even reads that Jesus has equipped him with grace, with apostleship to do this. This whole passage of scripture, I hope you can see just by the simple points on the screen, are centered on Jesus. Paul's a servant of him. The gospel's about him. And he proclaims in that message to the nations that Jesus is savior of all. And Paul concludes in verse 7 with that well-known greeting that we see elsewhere to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about the origin of the church in Rome next week. But Paul says that grace and peace from God and from Christ are available to you. This is accomplished because of what Christ has done. We only have peace with God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And as we conclude, then, looking at these verses, as I mentioned just a moment ago, I think it's hopefully evident to you what the theme of these first seven verses is. It's all about Jesus. Who he is, who he's equipped where Paul is going to proclaim the name of Jesus. Paul is a servant of his Lord. And I think it might be wise for us to think about Philippians chapter 1, where Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What Paul is saying here is that the entirety of my life is a sacrifice to Jesus. As long as I have breath, I will be living for him. And if I die, 
even better. It's gain. I can't wait, Paul says. And I just can't help but wonder if Jesus has really consumed our thoughts like he did the Apostle Paul. Because if I have to be honest, I'm not really like that. There are times in my life where Jesus is not at the forefront of my mind where I find myself getting distracted by the cares of this life. And all of a sudden, before you know it, we have pursued something totally, totally contrary to what the scriptures want us to be doing. Are we servants of Jesus? Do we do what he says? Is he the first thing on our minds when we wake up? The last thing we think of when we go to sleep is every decision we make during the day with the intent to follow and please and proclaim this Jesus. It was Paul's. Everything he did was in subjection to Christ. The focus of the gospel is Jesus, and he proclaimed Jesus to the nations. And I just have to ask, again, maybe an applicational question. Is the good news of Christ on the tip of our tongue? Are we truly concerned for people's souls? I may have mentioned this recently, but pardon me if I did. I read a book recently in which an author pointed out that although Christians would deny universalism as a theology, We're kind of practical universalists. Let me explain that really quickly here. Universalism is this idea that all roads kind of lead up the same mountain to God. And that you can get to heaven through Jesus, through Allah, through whoever. All just different paths up to the same ending. Everyone goes to heaven in the end. And we would be the first to say, no, absolutely not. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And yet, in practice, we act a whole lot like universalists, don't we? Because we see our neighbors and our loved ones and our friends, and rather than pleading with them to come to Christ, we sit back and we think, someone else will do it. Maybe there is another way they could get to heaven. They're fine. That is just not true. Like Paul, we need to have an urgency with these people and love them enough to plead with them and say, your eternal destiny is at stake here. Here's what Jesus has done. Run to him. Paul didn't wait around waiting for someone else to do this work. His life was consumed in service to Jesus. And he went. And he said, shipwrecks, okay. Beatings, that's fine. You want me to go to the other end of the known world? I'll do it. I'm yours, Jesus. And I think we need to capture a similar mindset in our own lives. I've mentioned this previously, but I'm reading the biography of Hudson Taylor right now. And it has just been such a challenge to me personally as here was a young man 
in 1800s England who was converted, I think when he was a teenager, and almost instantaneously said, I got to go to China. There are a million people a month in 1800s China that are dying without Christ. Who's going to go? And I mentioned this in Sunday school a while back, but part of what that looked like for Hudson is saying, you know what? The luxuries of life, I don't need. So if I can save some money by not having butter and milk and the luxuries of my diet so that I can give that money away to missionaries or to poor people in my community, I'll do it. And he lived on like rice and oatmeal for dinner. You think he was serious about following Jesus? This is the guy who gets to China and it's in the middle of like civil war. This is not like, hey, you know, we're going to come fan you with palm branches and Europeans are here. This is so amazing. No, I mean, like war crimes, horrors are being committed all around him. This is before air conditioning and the luxuries of life. He had already started sleeping on a cot in England to prepare himself for when he got to China. It's hot, it's humid. These people are caught up in war themselves. And he says, I got to tell you guys about Jesus. But he realizes that the way that he's dressed is more of a show than it is anything else. He looks like a European. People are flocking to him, not because they want to hear his message, but because he looks weird, because he's different. And so, yeah, from the casual observer's perspective, he does have crowds that are listening to his preaching, but not because they care about Jesus. And Hudson realizes, you know what? If I started dressing like the Chinese people, I could make a lot more impact in this country. So he shaved the front of his head, grew out a ponytail in the back, started dressing like the normal Chinese teacher would. And would you believe it? People started inviting him into their homes. And he built redemptive relationships with Chinese people. And his fellow missionaries who are British are like, what is this guy doing? He looks ridiculous. I'm sure he did to the Europeans, but it was for Christ. Why was Hudson Taylor so motivated to forsake everything that was a comfort to him in England and go? Because he was a servant of Jesus. And he knew what he had been forgiven. And that this message cannot be just passed on to someone else and they'll take care of it. He felt personally burdened to proclaim Jesus to anyone who would listen. I'll close with just one final excerpt from his life that I think really captures well what he was doing there. One of the men who was saved under his ministry approached him one day with kind of a question out of the blue and asked Hudson, uh, how long have you guys had the good tidings back in your country? And reluctantly, Hudson Taylor said, hundreds of years now.
And the guy was like, what? My dad was looking for the truth. And he never found it. And you guys have known about this for hundreds of years? Who else is going to ask that question of us? A coworker? A neighbor? A family member? What? You've known the glad tidings for this long and you haven't told me? You've not thought to tell me about Jesus and what he has done? We begin Romans here with an emphasis on the person of Christ. That's all we're living for. Let me encourage you and challenge you. As I think the song said, again, it's just amazing how these things were all connected, but one of the lyrics, and yet not I, but through Christ in me, is with every breath, I long to follow Jesus. I hope and pray that that really becomes true of us as we just study this beautiful text of scripture. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for the book of Romans in all of its glory and majesty proclaiming the goodness of Jesus to us, going into great detail, talking about these doctrines of salvation. That you saw us in our rebellion and enmity towards you, and you didn't wait for us to figure out a solution, but you came to us, you chose us, and offered your son as a propitiation, a way to stay your wrath. And now for those of us who are in Christ, our sins are forgiven. We have hope of eternal life. Lord, we're so grateful for what you have done in and through Jesus. And I pray that our love for him would increase as we study out in detail uh, this book. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, and if the new members can join me out in the lobby as we sing our last song, that would be great.